If science teaches us anything, it teaches us to accept our failures as well as our successes with quiet dignity and grace. Son of a bitch bastard, I'll get you for this! What did you do to me? What did you do to me? Stop it! I don't want to live! I do not want to live! Quiet dignity and grace. Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of the Flushing Transit Authority, which is still a Mets podcast, even though things have kind of gone off the metaphorical cliff. We, to this point, have not demanded a trade to another podcast, unlike some other people that we know, uh, although season is uh, still going on, so anything can happen. Yeah, I have to say, um, uh, you're Jay Bushman, by the way. I'm Will Stegman. Am I? Am I really still? I, I, I don't know anymore. I mean, you, the way things have been going, I, I could be anybody. I could be Dan Duquette at this point. I, I wouldn't be able to tell. I actually lifted your wallet as you were coming in, <laughs> and I checked your ID, and you are still Jay Bushman. That must make you Will Stegman. It, it is. If your wallet's missing, you know Will Stegman's been here. <laughs> so, yeah, we're still a Mets podcast, even though, look, I've contacted my agent. There are some... Really nice podcast hey, you, out there. You got you got to think of your family at this point. At this point, like maybe look, my kids would like to go to a nice Astros podcast school. <laughs> I don't have kids, but anyway, I do have to say, uh, speaking of my mistake about having children, wait, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Hang on, I don't have kids. That's not the only mistake I've made. I've got to correct something else. In a previous episode, we stated that Atlanta Braves Hall of Famer Chipper Jones was on trial and facing a lengthy prison sentence for crimes against the Mets. Sadly, we were given bad information by a court reporter. It turns out the statute of limitations on Tripper Jones' crimes against the Mets have expired. Therefore, Tripper Jones is free to roam the streets and haunt our nightmares forever. So anyway, that out of the way... Let's uh, let's get to baseball. Actually, before we get to baseball, please, <laughs> anything before we get to baseball, we should take a moment at the top of the show here to extend our condolences to the family of longtime Mets groundskeeper Pete Flynn, who passed away this week at the age of seventy-nine. Pete Flynn, for those of you who um, are not up to date on your groundskeepers, um. Pete was a was the groundskeeper at Shea Stadium and later um, City Field for the first couple of seasons. He was with the Mets organization for 50 years. And, you know, a lot like Bill Webb, who passed away earlier this year, um, Pete Flynn was responsible for the way we perceived the game. We had talked earlier in the season about the way, um, you know, Bill Webb as a um, TV as a TV yeah. director, you know, was an artist when it came to presenting the game to us. But the canvas that Bill Webb worked on was the field that Pete Flynn and his crew put together. And the fact that um, we took for granted that that beautiful green grass and that field at Chase Stadium, say whatever you want about Chase Stadium as a building. Mm-hmm. 
and um, you know the surrounding area. But I remember as a kid walking into Shea Stadium for the first time and taking that escalator all the way up to the top deck and through the tunnel, seeing the green grass of the outfield for the first time mm-hmm. and feeling like this is what it must be like to walk into a, you know, a medieval cathedral. Like this is medieval being the right word. Well, yes, but this is, this is as close to God as I'm going to get in my life yeah. is seeing this, this green grass that I'd only imagined what it looked like. And you know, we really have the, the work of the grounds crew to thank for that. And, you know, the thing I love about baseball more than any other sport is the, the sort of respect it pays to the people who keep the things running. Now, I don't know. I follow a lot of sports. I don't know who rides the Zamboni for the L.A. Kings. I don't know. Um, I don't know the equipment manager for, you know, basketball team. But I know the Mets groundskeeper. You know that's a that's an interesting uh, interesting thing that that this brings up, which is we talk a lot about, and fans in general talk a lot about players and managers and and front office people as, as movable pieces. As you know, oh, we get this person, we get rid of that person, judging people's jobs, and and especially the Mets have had a. A, a, I was going to say a bum rap, but it may not be a bum rap. It may be a deserved rap for the Wilpons on how they run the franchise for the product on the field. But at the same time, the stuff we don't talk about is someone like Pete Flint, who is their groundskeeper for decades. Someone like Bill Webb, who is their TV director for decades. Someone like... Um, the late, Shannon Ford. the late Shannon Ford, someone like Jay Horowitz, who is their, their media relations guy for decades, that these people take care of the people that work for them and don't treat them like fungible, replaceable assets. For the most part, there's been, there was, uh, there was Jeff Wilpon got in a little hot water yes. um, a couple of years ago. We've talked before about Steve Phillips and his, you know, judgment with the interns. Right. Um, and, you know, there was an equipment, uh, equipment manager, clubhouse guy who mm-hmm. had been, um, you know, stealing some equipment and reselling it. Samuels? Is I that believe so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it happens, but I think the Mets have a long history, as do most um, major league teams, of taking care of those behind the scenes people. And again, yes. the beauty of baseball is that the season is so long and the games last so long and baseball more than any other sport, the, the field is part of the, well, obviously it's part of the game, but because in baseball, there isn't a uniform mm-hmm. shape to the field. Yeah. There's character involved. Yes. Yes. And so I can't remember how, if we've talked about this, but have you, did you ever get onto the field at Chase Stadium? Never did. Not once. I did one time. And I don't remember how old I was or what year it was. But if you'll recall, the Mets used to have a tradition called Banner Day. Yes. Um, I shudder to think what Banner Day would be like today 
in the era of Twitter and social media postings and, and, and shit posting memes. I would like to see it though. But consider Banner Day an early, early version of that impulse. If, if those of you who, uh, who are listening who don't remember or never were able to uh, see or partake in a Banner Day, Banner Day was way back when baseball used to actually schedule doubleheaders. Sunday doubleheaders. Sunday doubleheaders. And once a year, they would have a scheduled doubleheader where in between the two games, fans could march in a parade around the field. And you signed up and, you know, my, my dad did the sign up, so I literally have no understanding whatsoever of what that process was like. But I do recall that one year, maybe it might have been 1984, maybe one of the last years they did 1985. Um, my father, I don't remember if my mother came with us, but my father and me and my sister made some banners and we walked on the field. And what I remember is walking out through the gate in left field. And the very first thing I did was kneel down and scoop up some dirt from the warning track. Yeah. And I had that dirt for years. Now, warning track dirt is not like other kinds of dirt. This dirt was as pristine as dirt could be. Like it was too clean to be dirt. It was too clean to be dirt. It was these like little like diamond shaped pellets that it was almost like the, the grains of dirt were as individual as snowflakes. Um, and I can still feel the rough texture of that. And so when the news broke that Pete Flynn had died, that's what I flashed on is I flashed on holding this pile of Shea Stadium warning track dirt. And you know, the amazing thing is that's a design decision. If you think about the warning track, it's there so that a player who's possibly chasing a ball and not looking down, when they step from the grass to that dirt, they need to know where they are. Um, you know, and as somebody who is who is very interested in the way thing, the way a ballpark is designed, yeah, to uh, to play a certain way, every decision that goes into, you know, how is the dirt of the warning track compared to the dirt you know, around home plate. You know, I, I find myself in, in the rest of my life um, having lots of conversations that all sort of revolve around a similar theme, which is why do we do things the way we do things? We have all of these restrictions. We have all of these rules. There are all of these conventions that don't seem to make any sense or just, you know, seem to be arbitrary. Why are they there? And... You know, there we live in a time of great disruption where throughout lots of different fab, uh, parts of society, the old ways of doing things are being swept away and new versions are being put in. But and, and there's a merit to that. But what I find myself reminding people in these conversations over and over and over again is a lot of the things that are here are here for a reason. Like you said, the warning track is a design decision. It solved a problem. You can't like get rid of things like that without bringing the problems back. Um, and the fact that it's this subtle thing that you don't even really think about it, but it does its job and it does its job really well is, is an amazing uh, testament to design thinking and, and part of Pete Flynn's amazing legacy that, that he made this thing that was Worked perfectly day in, day out. Yeah. Pete Flynn also was the person 
who drove the Beatles to the stage in 1964 when the Beatles played Chase Stadium. I had no idea. Pete Flynn drove the Beatles to uh, from you know where their dressing room basically to the stage. So in 2008, when um, the Mets had already played their last game. There was a Billy Joel concert, mm-hmm. which is available on DVD or streaming. It's called Last Play at Shea. And I have a a side history with that movie that we'll get to on another podcast. <laughs> but, spoiler alert, the sort of climax of the concert film and a runner that happens throughout the, bit, throughout the DVD is Paul McCartney is on a plane flying from London and he's scheduled to land in New York. And the plan is McCartney's going to get a police escort to Shea Stadium where he's going to join Billy Joel on stage. And the question is, is, is Paul going to make it? <laughs> Spoiler alert, he does. Here's the cool thing. Paul McCartney, he's got his bass with him. And he's leaving the dressing room. And who's waiting for him in a golf cart? Pete Flynn, who says to Paul McCartney, Mr. McCartney, I don't think you'll remember this, but I drove you and your band out to the stage in 1964. Wow. And it was a great little moment of sort of bringing closure to Shea Stadium um, through someone who had been there from the very beginning. So rest in peace, Pete Flynn, and thank you for all of the work you did in maintaining that palace. I think that we should probably make this just a full groundskeeper um, podcast from now on. You know, I, I, I'm i sad to say I don't know who the current groundskeeper is of City Field. Well, we'll find out in another right. 46 years. <laughs> okay, we'll get on that. We'll yeah, on that. groundskeepers are elected to a 50-year term. It's a, <laughs> it's a really special job. So let's talk about our Mets Panic level. Now that we've discussed death, let's move on to destruction. Actually, you know what? Let's sort of recap here. Last time we spoke, two weeks ago, we were, um, we were, I don't know if optimistic is the right word. You were not. I had to talk you down off of the ledge. True. But we agreed two weeks ago that we were entering a make or break section of the season for the Mets. Again. If they were going to make a move, that was the time they were going to do it. Well, they made a move. They made a move. It just was not in the direction that we wanted them to go. But let's not lose sight of the fact that it started in the right direction. When we spoke last, um, at least when we recorded the conversation, because we've spoken since, um, the Mets were about to play the Atlanta Braves. And through um, the luck of the Nationals scuffling in their series... The Mets managed to pick up like four games in the standings in about a six-day period, which was enough of a tease to make me say, hey, maybe Jay was right. (laughs) Never listen to me. I'm never right. So (laughs) the Mets take the, the gap between them and the Nationals from 12 games in the lost column to eight games in the lost column. And then the Nationals are coming to town for, for a four-game four series. We can we can cut the deficit. I love how when, when these things happen, we instantly think, sweep. Yeah, we're going to sweep. We're going to sweep. Totally. Totally. We'll go from eight games back to four games back. Just like 2015, we'll be off to the races. 
So it doesn't happen that way. Mets lose no. three out of four to the Nationals. But then they're coming to Los Angeles. That's the city where we live. Of course they're going to sweep. Right. Well, didn't happen that way. Not only did it not happen, but, you know, we've talked in the past about how the World Series in 2015, while painful as a defeat, um, one thing was utterly clear during that series, which is the Mets were not the better team on the field, that the Royals were just a better team. And anytime the Mets made a mistake, the Royals pounced on it. And the hard part about this past week, week and a half, is that it strips away all of our illusions that the Mets do not belong on the same field as the Nationals, and they do not belong in the same field as the Dodgers, that both of those teams are playing at such a higher level um, that it really sort of exposed the fact that 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 the Mets this year just haven't are not not even in the conversation. Right. And it's not going to happen. Yeah, the Mets got embarrassed by the Dodgers. Um, yes, um, and I mean we'll get into this a little more uh, in detail later. But uh, we were at the game at Thursday night, and for me that was the end of the season. Like yeah. I have been the voice of optimism on this podcast, which in and of itself is a crazy thing. Um, but you're not going to hear that from me anymore this season. Yeah. Um, it's done. And and there's no sense in pretending um, any differently. Oh, I'm with you. You know, I um, I get excited whenever the Mets come to LA. I try to go to as many games as I can. This year, you know, they only make one trip a year here, unless they make the playoffs against the Dodgers, um, which is, as we said, is not going to happen. So I opted to go to two of the games this week. Um, I couldn't do the Monday night game. I had work commitments. Um, I got home in time to watch a little bit of it on TV. Immediately regretted the decision to um, to put the game on. Now, there's another side issue here in LA, which is it is hard to find the game on TV. Oh my God, yes. Because normally we'll watch the SNY broadcast on um, you know MLB Extra Innings, but when they're playing the Dodgers, that the SNY feed is blacked out. Now, there's an issue with the Dodgers network, which is um, Spectrum Sportsnet. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have a contract with most TV providers. So unless you've got Spectrum, which used to be Time Warner, unless you've got their service, you can't watch the games. So through a series of, of questionably legal means, I watched a little bit of Monday's game <laughs> and immediately regretted going through the rigmarole of... of you know, masking my IP so I could watch some of the uh, SNY feed. Off, uh, off, off mic, I'm going to have to find out how you got that to work because I tried to get that to work mm-hmm. and, it, and it wouldn't. And uh, um, and I guess if the, if the games had felt more competitive, I would have tried harder. But, exactly. But it, it, they didn't, so I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> After an inning and a half, I decided to yeah. bail on that plan. So, Tuesday night... I, Hang on, before we move move on from that, can I just take this moment to to make a plea to SNY, which is for the love of Pete, let us subscribe to your damn network. This is 2017. The idea of regional territories for broadcast and online media makes no sense. Please, I will give you money if you will let me watch your network. It is a relic of another era. 
And when we talk about sort of why things are set up that way, like the original TV method is a design decision, but the industry has outlived the need yes. for that design. I mean, I hear Nelson Figueroa does a great job on the pre and post game show. I wouldn't know. I've never seen it. I would like to. I am a potential paying customer asking to give you money for your product. Help me here. Yes. Um, side, we'll have a side podcast one of these days because <laughs> those of you who, who don't know me um, outside of hearing my voice during this podcast, um, I work in the TV distribution industry. So I can go on at length about why it is we can't get the yes. things we want to watch. And the answers will never be satisfying. So let's not talk about it. <laughs> Speaking of unsatisfying, I went to Tuesday night's game. Um, my wife and I went, um, knowing that it was the only Mets game that she and I were going to go to together um, here in L.A., we decided to go all out, got some real fancy seats at a reasonable price. Um, I do what I always do at Dodger Stadium, which is I pay for VIP parking, which Smart means move. you get basically easy in and out. Um you don't got to deal with the long walk from the satellite parking mm -hmm. to the stadium. It makes the whole trip a lot smoother. In between the drive and the parking and everything else, I saw the worst baseball game I've ever witnessed in person. Now, I've been going to games for 33 years now. In fact, this week was the 33rd anniversary of my first ever trip to Shea Stadium. Um, and I'm going to tell you the worst game I've ever seen in my life in person was the Mets and Dodgers on Tuesday because the Mets absolutely positively stunk. This is worse than Brett Saberhagen, Vince Coleman, your beloved Bobby Bonilla. This is worse, worse than that team. This is worse than, for me, the sort of rock bottom for going to Mets games was... Immediately after the strike in 94, going to the games in 95 and 96. The Pete Harnish years. The Pete Harnish, Dallas Green years. And it's no knock on the players or the people who are on the bench trying to get that team to play. They just didn't have the horses. So we went, we'd go because there were cheap concessions mm -hmm. or I could get a cheap seat. You know, 95, I used to be able to go to Shea Stadium. Um, and basically for, for $20, have a, have a full day because you can get an upper deck ticket and in the 95 season, because, you know, trying to bring people back after the strike, they were offering half price concessions. Wow. You know, anything except beer, you want, you want hot dogs and soda, popcorn, half price. And it was terrific. So my brother and I would go to games and basically for 20 bucks each, we'd have a full day of it. <laughs> we were going for the experience. The right. team was terrible. Whether they won or not was immaterial. Later, when Bobby Valentine showed up and the, the team started to be competitive, then your focus shifted. Once you get a taste of winning, it's hard to go back to that place. It is. Where the experience itself is enough. So, I go out on Tuesday, and the Mets are getting killed. In the fifth inning, it was 10 to nothing Dodgers. And I did something that I've never done which is in the fifth inning, I got up and left. Just my wife and I gather our stuff. So, you know, we don't need this. This is not, I'm not enjoying this. 
to be fair, this is Los Angeles. So when you left in the fifth inning, you were joined by about one fifth of the paying attendance of the of I, the rest of the, the the stadium. I have to say, Dodger fans get a bad rap for that. I remember. I guess it was. It might have actually been 1986. Um, where my family uh, took a, a, a West Coast vacation, and it was my first time coming to Los Angeles, and the Mets were in town while we were here, so we went to a game. And it's my first time at Dodger Stadium, and I remember the sixth inning rolling around and everyone getting up to leave, and we were just like looking around going, what the heck are you doing? Like, there's still a game going on. Why are you leaving now? It's close. And then, we so we stayed until the end of the game, and then it took us two hours to get out of yep. the Chavez Ravine parking lot, and I understood why people left. This is why I always tell people, pay the extra money, get the VIP parking. Because when we went on Thursday, mm-hmm. which we'll talk more about that later, I stayed much longer than I did on Tuesday, Still got out of there real quick because when you use VIP parking, there's no bottleneck to get out of the stadium. It, it's worth the money right there. And, you know, I don't know if this is precisely uh, accurate, but I believe the difference in cost between the regular parking and the VIP parking is roughly akin to the cost of one Dodger dog. Basically, so yes. your value add for the preferred parking is so much higher than those awful Dodger dogs. Yes. Yeah, Dodger dogs are possibly the most overrated of all ballpark ballpark items. Um, so on Thursday, the first ever Flushing Transit Authority goes to the ballpark together. Field trip. Yes. <laughs> so uh, how was your Thursday night? Um, not great, Bob. Um, I will say that, you know, on the previous, uh, on the previous episode, we had a, a, our first ever major disagreement about the quality of Dodger Stadium. I, I outed myself as not a fan. Um, but one thing that I did realize when we were at the game on Thursday night is we got tickets on, uh, one of the things I find endlessly frustrating about Dodger Stadium is if you look at their ticket map. There are 37 different sections, and they're all variations on color that are too subtle for me to see. Yeah. So I don't know what section we sat in. What 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 was that? That's field we sat level in the field section, MVP section, I, or possibly VIP. One of the P's. One of the P's. Anyway, we're on the on the first level uh, behind home plate. Not the, like, super rich, like, where the celebrities sit, like, inner circle area. But there's, like, the inner circle where the the seats are light blue, and then there's a little moat. And then behind it is the, you know, um, better seats, but not as good as those blue seats. That's where we were. Um, The seats were fantastic. And the experience of a game at Dodger Stadium there is so much better than it is on the upper levels that um, I have to remember that it's really worth it. Again, the, the premium, it's worth the extra money to sit on that bottom level because it's such a better experience down yeah. there. The difference um, at Dodger Stadium between sitting field level and sitting upper deck is the difference between flying coach and flying first class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I was reminded of on Thursday that I find endlessly frustrating about uh, Dodger Stadium, and, and to a certain extent, 
Every stadium has this problem. Um, this is an audio medium, so you can't see me, but I am a large fellow. Um, I'm about six foot four uh, in height. Um, I'm not six foot four wide, but I'm, I'm, I'm a large guy. Um, it's very difficult for me to walk in Dodger Stadium because the concourses are too narrow and the placement of all of the concessions means the lines block all method of walking. Yeah. And it's really hard to get from one place to anywhere else in Dodger Stadium because of that for me. Um, yeah. yeah. Dodger Stadium needs to make a little more use of the sort of rope setup mm -hmm. to lead people into the lines. Yeah. As opposed to everybody just yeah. sort of mill about. Yeah. Uh, that's a, I yeah. hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, because I am of a shorter stature. I have, it takes me an enormous amount of effort to walk around Dodger Stadium without inadvertently elbowing the people around. Right. Um, it's funny you should mention walking around Dodger Stadium because I managed to make it to the park early on Thursday. Um, I got there early because traffic was relatively light from where I was coming from. And as I was walking around the stadium, just as it's filling up, I got there in time to see the end of Mets um, batting practice. And as I'm walking around, I've got my Mets cap on. And every time I see somebody else with Mets gear, we kind of give each other a knowing but sad look. <laughs> yeah. Like, boy, this didn't work out the way we planned. Yeah. And then finally, like, I take a trip up to the upper deck to get a couple of shots from up there. Um, as I'm walking the stairs back down to the field level, I, I pass a guy... In a, uh, in a in a Matt Harvey jersey and a hat and in a, in a thick um, what I took to to read as a sort of uh, one of the just a thick Mets fan accent. <laughs> I couldn't pinpoint the borough, but he's like, "Hey, you think we're gonna get a game today? We're gonna salvage one of these?" <laughs> salvage, as Jay pointed yes, out to me salvage. when I sat down, was the operative word. Yeah. And no, the Mets did not salvage a game on Thursday. In fact, we were probably witness to the low point of the season, if not our lives. Uh, not, not our. I'm not going to go that far. It, but it was definitely the the low point of the season. The moment in which um, it's that moment when Sisyphus almost has the rock at the top of the hill, and then it just goes barreling back down, and you go. This is never going to end, is it? The moment we're talking about is uh, late in the seventh inning on Thursday. What day was that? June 20th? Um, no, no. June 22nd. I'm 22nd, sorry. yeah. Two days ago. Seems like time. an eternity ago. Seems like forever. <laughs> um, late in the game, the Dodgers had the bases loaded and one out, and the pitcher spot coming up. Pitcher, in this case, was a reliever with two major league at-bats. Pedro Baez. The reliable Jerry Blevins on the mound. Jerry Blevins proceeds to walk Pedro Baez on four pitches. On four pitches. Now, to Jerry Blevins, just to defend Jerry a little bit, the home plate umpire on, at Thursday night's game was wildly inconsistent. However... You've got a pitcher up there with two major league at bats. Um, Jerry, throw strikes. It, it was all the more frustrating because the previous batter, he, I can't remember if he walked the previous batter or if he actually got the yeah, second so out. Yeah, so was the previous batter. Um, but as the previous batter was up, 
Corey Seager was on in the on-deck circle, supposedly hitting for the pitcher spot. So when the bases get loaded, we're expecting Corey Seager to come up, and that's nothing but trouble. And then suddenly they pull him back, and they let Baez hit for himself. Now let me repeat this. Two career at-bats. It seemed like we were sitting in the stands going, what the heck are they doing? They're like giving up here. They're giving us a gift. Like, like as frustrating as this team has been this year, I'm not that upset if they're down one run, two innings to go. They can easily make that back up. But you've got the bases loaded. You've got a chance to put this game down. And you send up a guy with two career at-bats. It felt like a gift. It felt like a major mistake that any good team would pounce on. And instead of pouncing on it, Blevins walked him in four straight pitches. I remember as Baez is coming to the plate, and we're thinking, oh, this is a gift. Dave Roberts is handing us a gift. Yeah. And one of the guys in front of us who was a, who was a Mets fan said, well, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was less a gift and more of a dare. Basically, what Dave Roberts and the Dodgers were saying is, we don't need an insurance run. We don't think you can beat us. And, and they were right. They were right. Yeah. And so for me, that was the end of the 2017 season. Yes. That, that marked the moment when no more Friedman units, no more, you know, next couple of weeks, you know, we'll see. No more checking of the standings. We have to shift gears towards 2018. And yeah. we have to do it now. And when that Levin's walk took place, what I did at that moment was to say, I do not need this in my life anymore. I'm going home because I felt like there was no reason for me to sit in that stadium feeling angry. I went home. Now, there's something important to, to, to realize here, which is to a certain extent, this is a gift to us because we can now shift gears from every game has to be won to every game should be enjoyable. Like, we can now go back to the state that we as Mets fans have lived in for most of our lives, which is they're not going to win, so find other things to enjoy. So I think of this a lot like, I'm looking at the Mets this season now as a TV show that I've watched for years. And this TV show has made a story decision that I don't agree with. It's season five of The West Wing. But I care enough about the characters <laughs> yes. that I'm sticking around and watching. It's funny that we're talking about TV shows because Thursday night at the ballpark was Game of Thrones night. Yes, it was. And I'm going to just criticize the, the Dodgers organization here to say it was the lamest. There was, other than the fact that they played the Game of Thrones theme a couple of times, and there was some sort of, there was almost no promotion happening. Yeah. There was I mean, they've done this in the past at other stadiums where they've, like, changed the photos on the scoreboard to, like, be, like, Game of Thrones themed. Right. Nobody's head was put on a pike. Right. When like, they, you know, I don't know. When they do a Star Wars night, fan show up in costume, yeah. and there's, there's light shows, and they go all out. Other than the fact that it said Game of Thrones night on some signs. And, I didn't see much, yeah. And you heard the music, and there was somebody dressed as Jon Snow. Outside, before <laughs> yeah. the game started, who knew nothing. Um, there was just, there was, there was no feel to it. 
So I will say for us, there was one amazingly on-point Game of Thrones um, um, correspondence, which is it was very clear to us that winter is coming. And winter winter is has coming. come. And as, and as my wife, uh, previous guest on this podcast, stated, oh, it's appropriate that it's Game of Thrones night because every Mets game this season has been the Red Wedding. Pretty much. So um, for those of you who have not read the books or seen the show, um, you'll find out what that means one day. <laughs> and you'll say, oh, that was right. Yeah. So right now we're season five of the West Wing of this season. Why are we watching? So... Wait till next year is always, always a, a, you know, truism. It's a baseball truism that, you know, unless our um, orange buffoon of a leader, you know, launches the missiles, there will be a baseball season next year. Um, And a lot of this team will still be intact. Um, A lot of it won't. And so we can start looking ahead towards tinkering around and seeing how they're going to rebuild Right. And how they're going to retool. Now, um, it's interesting that we were talking about uh, the uh, the analogy of, of the team as a TV show because um, we, as we have stated, live in Los Angeles, home of the American entertainment industry. Um, and there was something else that happened this week, uh, not baseball related, but entertainment related, that I, I've been thinking a lot about in relation to what's been going on with the Mets. Have you been following the news about what's been going on with the uh, upcoming Han Solo Star Wars movie? I know about it now, but I wasn't aware of it until actually you texted me something. (laughs) I had made some remark about Terry Collins' job being on the line um, after I left the game on on Tuesday, and you said maybe Terry Collins can uh, direct the next the, uh, the Han Solo movie. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I got home and looked it up and realized what had happened. And, you know, living in L.A. and working in the entertainment industry, we sometimes forget that the rest of the country and the rest of the world isn't up on the inside baseball that we are. So, Or don't, don't really care. Um, so if you're not up on this news, um, the directors of the uh, uh, in-production Star Wars spin-off movie about young Han Solo were ab- abruptly fired this week. Um, and it's become this sort of um, huge controversy over why were they fired? Um, what really happened? What is this going to mean for the quality of this movie that's going to come out next year? And everyone who is following this is speculating, is panicking, is trying to assign blame and trying to figure out what they're going to do in order to fix it. These dynamics sound very, very familiar. Um, And at the end of the day, the person who is responsible for the quality of every Star Wars movie and every other piece of Star Wars product is the president of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy. In the same way that the person responsible for everything that happens with the Mets is general manager Sandy Alderson. And you can look at both of those people as the final authority and we don't know what they're doing. And we honestly don't know better than them. These are professionals. Like, like when there's been all this kind of outcry about the, the, the Lord and Miller, the, the guys who were fired from, uh, um, from directing the Han Solo movie and people complaining about like, oh no, they, they, they're the directors. They should be given, you know, carte blanche to do whatever they want. 
And I saw that and, and I, and to, you know, to go back to another television show, another classic television show, The Wire, um, my, my first thought when I saw they were fired was you come at the queen, you best not miss. Like, this is the equivalent of like Bobby Valentine and Steve Phillips butting heads. Bobby Valentine's never going to win that. Right. Right. You do not walk into the GM's office. You do not walk into the president of the, of the entertainment company's office and say, I want this or else I'm out of here unless you're ready for them to go, okay, you're out of here. Right. Because with entertainment as well as with, you know, sports, it's the finished product that matters. It's what ends up on the screen and on the field, not the process. Right. Which I think probably is a good point to, uh, to bring us to our friend as Drupal Cabrera, who decided, you know, the season this year has not been enough of a debacle. Why don't we make it even more? So, yeah, it brings us to really what are we looking for? What are, we, what are the storylines we're following? And that came up as an unexpected storyline on Friday. Basically, um, Cabrera asking to be traded. Now, I have to say, I'm okay with that. I feel like the organization treated this move to second, um, although poorly. They could have given him more notice. They could have had him maybe play some second base in a minor league rehab assignment. They didn't. He rehabbed, he showed up, and was told, you're playing second base. Cabrera's got enough tenure in the league um, where I have no problem with him saying I want to be traded. Um, I don't even have issues with the fact that he did it through the media. That's that's the way players communicate. And that probably says more about his relationship with the organization than it does um, his, you know, his, his manners. And that's the worrying thing is that this is yet another example of – communication and decision-making on the inside of the organization seeming to not work. That, you know, we go back to Syndergaard refusing an MRI earlier this year, um, you know, that, that people don't seem to be talking to people. The whole thing with Matt Harvey, like not being told that he was going to start on the day that he was like, like what's going on here? There's, there's too much smoke for there not to be some fire. And one of the interesting things that we talked about this at length on Thursday night, um, with this season being pretty much done, um, Terry Collins is most likely gone um, after this year. Um, Sandy Alderson may not be back as general manager. We're looking at the possibility of an entirely new front office coming in next year and then who the heck knows what they want to do. We could, you know, get somebody who has a, you know, a philosophy about, you know, uh, uh, don't overpay for pitching. And so then, you know, we trade all of our pitchers because that's what their philosophy is. Right. We could end up with my nightmare is we end up with someone like Willie Randolph, who Willie was a fine manager, like whatever, whatever you want to say about like how he, he comported himself on the field or how he managed his team. But somebody who has some stupid rule about you can't wear mustaches, like, I hate crap like that, where it's like, these are grown men, like, let them behave like adults. Like, what the heck is this crap? So these personalities, these shaping personalities that are going to determine the character of the team for the next few years are up for grabs right now, and we don't know who they're going to be. I will tell you, well, you know what, let's put a pin in that for one second. We do have a, a sponsor. Oh, okay. And um, if we want to keep 
getting those fancy seats and <laughs> VIP parking, we better pay the bills. Good idea. Have you ever wanted to be a sports trainer or just look like one? Well, you are lucky because you now have the opportunity to sign up for the hottest thing in sports, in sports medicine, the Ray Ramirez School of Medicine. Yes, you, you too can learn sports medicine from Ray himself. Soon, you can diagnose a season-ending injury as a day-to-day -day muscle strain, and you can provide evasive answers about a player's status, just like the pros. Don't miss this opportunity to impact the outcome of a season in a way you never imagined with the Ray Ramirez School of Medicine. I gotta say, um, happy to see Ray branching out into a second career. Well, he's gonna need the income from he's that. He's probably going to. You know, uh, um, it's not it's not Ray Ramirez branded, but um, it comes from um, his uh, his right hand or I guess right quad man, uh, Mike Barwis, um, who runs the strength and conditioning. I don't know if you've seen these, but uh, my Facebook feed is full of ads for some gimmicky neuroscience bullshit device that. Barwis is selling where it's like you wear this headset and it like plays some kind of like audio patterns that's supposed to increase your muscles responses to stuff. He's got Cespedes in an ad for this. He's got like players from other, other uh, teams doing ads for this. I want to say it's called Halo something, but like I look at this stuff and I'm like, Oh my God, like even if this is real, this looks like quackery. This, this looks, looks like a pyramid scheme. Like a pyramid scheme. This looks like something that Gwyneth Paltrow would sell you on Goop. And like, if that's the level of the Mets training staff, like that gives me, that explains a lot. Can you, I, it gives me an idea. Yeah. Look, Goop has been around for a while. It's not for me. I understand that some people like it. How about Yo? <laughs> the Ioannis Cespedes <laughs> Lifestyle Magazine. Uh, I would follow that. I would totally follow I that. I would do anything yes. that he tells me to do. Yes. Also, like, just the best part about it is all of the medallions. <laughs> all of the jewelry. Yes. I, I, I love. Mm -hmm. Really, when you get down to it, it's like, what am I watching for now? I'm watching the game for the small sort of grace notes. Yes. Um... There was something that happened uh, Thursday night's game that you never see on TV, but at some point in the middle of the game, Curtis Granderson drew, drew a walk, and uh, I'm on board. You know I love Curtis Granderson, but he did this thing where, you know, he tosses his bat, takes his walk down to first base, and then when he gets to first, he does a little hop step onto the bag, <laughs> yeah. and it was such a nice moment yeah. where it's like, oh... Curtis Granderson is still having fun. Yes. So I'm watching for things like that. We spent a lot of time on Thursday night sort of saying goodbye to some of these players who we are most likely never going to see live as Mets again. People like Curtis Granderson, people like Lucas Duda. Um, I was kind of hoping actually that Addison Reed would get into the game because I would like to have seen one last game with, uh, with yeah. Addison Reed. But most of these guys will not be on the team next year. They right. may not be in the team the next month. But, you know, watching for those small moments, mm -hmm. watching for just looking at, you know, our seats were close enough that to see Ioannis Cespedes at the plate up close mm -hmm. is something, uh, this is what the game is about. Just yeah. that 
that sort of coiled like a spring about to pop. Mm-hmm. You know, Cespedes yeah. at the plate. Um, so our task for the rest of this season is to rediscover that. Rediscover the joy in the game itself, in the experience itself, not tied to the outcome. Right. Because the outcome is not going to be what we want it to be this no. year. And this week really sent me down a rabbit hole of Mets history. And if you look at the Mets historically, you're choosing to be a fan of a team that is going to lose a lot more games than they win. Yes. I was shocked by one thing in digging through Mets history. The Mets have had 26 seasons where they have finished with a record of 500 or better, which seemed really high yes. to me. <laughs> it seems like about double the right. amount that it should because be. Because it turns out a lot of those were low 80s mm-hmm. wins. You know, yeah. after they won the World Series in 69, they had winning records for the next four seasons. But they were all around, you know, 83 to 87 games. Mm -hmm. The Mets have had a lot of, you know, low to mid-80s win totals. So it makes that record look a lot better. But really, when you get down to it, if you're a fan of almost any team, you're going to see more losses than wins. It's It's the way it works. So what are you watching for? I'm watching to have a good time. I'm watching to see players do amazing things. You're watching to see personalities that you Mm -hmm. like. You're watching to see development. You're watching to see a player figure things out. And that's the takeaway for the rest of this season. We, as fans, the thing that I want to see for all fans, but what I want to see, if you can't see winning, I want to see progress. Yes. So I want to see Michael Conforto come out of this slump. Like Michael Conforto had a great start to the season. And Michael Conforto has regressed to the mean hard. Yeah. And because the rest of the team has fallen apart, it's gotten lost. Yeah. Um, but he has regressed. Now, is he going to bounce back? Well, the Mets have no better option. All they've got to do is put him out there every day and let yeah. him figure it out. So what, what do you want to see for the rest of this year? Like, let's say for, I mean, and let's not get granular with specific moves or like trades because we don't know, you know, trade, trade, it's always funny. Like, like, oh, they should trade this guy. Well, trades have two sides to them and you right. have to send them to somebody who wants them and will give you something in return. Right. And we don't know what those things are, this but just on a broad scale, what, what do you want to see for the rest of this year? I want to see a set lineup go out there every day. And see what we have. I totally agree with and that. I, yeah, you're absolutely What that right. means is Conforto plays every day. Um, Stick Conforto in right field. Tell him you are playing here every day. Don't worry about it. And that also means the, um, the Mets organization's hostage, Ahmed Rosario. Yes, yes. Bring and, him you know, up. I mean, we've, this has turned into a thing. Like, I, uh, I believe that if they're not ready to bring him up, they're not ready to bring him up for some reason. Like, Ahmed Rosario is a person with his own sort of strengths and weaknesses that we don't know about yet. We're clamoring for him because he's unknown. Right. It's a blank slate. It's a blank slate. We can project everything on him. But but I do agree that, like, pretty soon it's going to be time to bring Ahmed Rosario up, put him at shortstop, tell him you're playing there every day. Bring Dom Smith up, put him at first base, see what we got. The one other guy who I would love to see them just give a ton of playing time to is Wilmer Flores. Put Wilmer Flores at second base. Tell him you're playing here every day. We're not moving you around. We're not going to tell you you're playing a different position every day you show up. Let him play a position 
for a few months, get comfortable, and let's see what we have with him. Right. Because my nightmare, we were talking about this on Thursday, like what if Wilmer Flores could turn into the next Justin Turner? This is what the Mets did with Justin Turner. They moved him around. They didn't give him a, a regular playing time. They let him go for nothing, and he turned into an all-star. As I said during the game on uh, Thursday, if I ever find the radioactive elf who <laughs> bit Justin Turner and gave him superpowers, yeah. I am going to give that elf a piece of my mind. I think it's hiding in Justin Turner's beard somewhere. Um, but you're right. I, Wilmer Flores, we love Wilmer. Wilmer is, you know, in a lot of ways, Wilmer is all of us. Well, I think Wilmer is an interesting case because Wilmer is on the cusp right now. Right. And depending on how things go, he could be another guy who fits in the slot in Mets history like Melvin Mora or Andy Chavez. But what do Melvin Mora and Andy Chavez have in common? They were gotten rid of relatively yes. quickly for relatively little. They are role players who had one or two great shining moments. That's different than a guy who is, he could become someone like an Edgardo Alfonso, who is a mainstay, who you can look at in the future and go, wow, that guy for a few years, he was the heart of this club. Wilmer's at this developmental point where he could go either way. And I feel like what we can get out of the rest of the season is we can put the spotlight on him and see what we got. Yeah. And either like have a second baseman or put him somewhere else for the, you know, the next few years or move on. Right. Because I think as an organization, you have to look at this as um, the players who can opt for free agency are going to opt for free agency. Yeah. So that's going to be Neil Walker. That's going to be Jay Bruce. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be prepared to let those people go. Right. The other thing I would like to see them do is I would like to see them have Travis Darno play every day as long as he is physically able to. Yeah. Um, no more if someone gets a personal catcher. No one like, well, we got to get Rene Rivera in the lineup because he's hitting. Yeah, Rene Rivera has been great. But if the point of the season isn't to win every game, it's to develop the players so that they can become reliable everyday players. Now is the time to let Travis succeed or fail. You brought up a great point during the game as well, which was when it comes to starting pitchers, let them pitch regardless of the outcome. Yes. Um, Steven Matz, get in there and pitch. Don't worry about don't worry about how the score. Yeah. Let's just see you work through this. You know, you've got a hundred pitches, go out there and do something with it. Right. Um, same thing for Seth Lugo and mm-hmm. Robert Selman. And even if it, you know, if he comes back, Matt Harvey. Yeah. The only person I think that you you know, obviously you're mindful of injuries. I think at this point you use you exercise extreme caution with Noah Syndergaard. Yeah. Um, but everybody else Go out there and pitch. The thing about Matt Harvey, we've talked about this at length, is Matt Harvey is um, suffers from expectations. Yes. We all expect something from Matt Harvey, and he is not the pitcher he used to be. This is the thing I said, I said on uh, the other night, which is, you know, Matt Harvey continues to get a bad deal from the press mm-hmm. and the media when he had the thoracic outlet surgery last year, the book was it's going to take a year for him to get back to, you know, to figure out whether or not he can be the pitcher he was. 
that doesn't change just because we want it to. Right. It hasn't been a year. Like, he is exactly where he is expected to be. Everyone, get off his damn case. Every time he goes out there and he's not the Dark Knight from 2015 or 2012, and everyone's like, oh my God, what's wrong with Matt Harvey? We know what's wrong with Matt Harvey. Matt he Harvey. is still recovering from having a rib removed from his body. Yes. Um, speaking of <sighs> just gets injuries. Me so, so annoyed that, like, it's just such... Anyway, whatever. Like, those of us... Those of us fans who complain about a player struggling to recover from an injury or come back, I just want to point out that when I was at the game on Tuesday night, I reached up for a foul ball that was coming my way and pulled the muscle in my ribcage. Yes. So I should not throw stones at players. By the way, I did not catch that foul ball. It landed two <laughs> rows behind me. In addition to being out of shape, my depth perception is also poor because I thought, oh, this fly ball is coming right to me. Let me just reach up and get this. Mm-hmm. And someone behind, two rows behind me caught it. On Thursday when we were there, I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a kid sitting directly above us in the next section who caught two foul balls. That's just, that, that's just uncalled for. Like One, some people give their whole lives. I've never even sniffed a foul ball. The and, smooth yeah. With the hat. Oh, nice. Um, this is not a uh, not to off to get us too far off track, but did you see what Clayton Kershaw did to Zach Hempel? I did. Are you not. familiar with who Zach Hempel is? No. Zach Hempel is a ball hawk. Zach oh, Hempel yes, I did see is the yes. guy who yes. goes to games and collects baseballs. Mm-hmm. And he asked Clayton Kershaw for a game for a ball on Father's Day because they were using the ball with the blue seams and Kershaw, who was aware of who he was, says, no, you've already got like 6,000 of them (laughs) and refused to give him the ball. Good job, Kershaw. Good job, Kershaw. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Look, I'm going to still be watching. I'm just watching with different expectations. So, we're very fortunate in that the Mets are getting, right now, the best gift they possibly could. Because while it's been a horrendous and disappointing season, there is one team in the league that has had a worse, more disappointing season than we have, and that is the San Francisco Giants. And the Mets got healthy last night. Yes. On the Giants. We'll have two more games against the Giants, which, you know, not that that they're going to be cakewalks, but at least they'll feel competitive. Yes. Feel like we have a chance. So now let's do what we always do. What's your outlook for the next two weeks? Here's my outlook for the next two weeks. The Mets are going to be better than we expect them to be. And we're going to be tantalized into thinking that, oh, maybe maybe it's not that. And then we're going to fall off the cliff again. And I'm not falling for it. I am not falling for it again. All I'm looking for over the next two weeks is progress for the organization and for the players we've talked about. Yeah. I want to see Steven Matz. Lugo, Yuselman, I want to see them working stuff out on the mound. I want to see a healthy Travis Darno, Michael Conforto, Lucas Duda. I want to see what I want to see what this team has got. We are getting pretty close to the All Star break. Yes. Um, do we think? All right. Here's two part question: Who's going to be the first player to be traded? And is it going to happen before the All-Star break or after? I think it happens after the break, simply because teams are going to use the break to talk Mm -hmm. about stuff. I think the first player to go is probably, well, I don't know this, 
But I mean, who is the biggest chip the Nets have right now? I'd, I, it'd either be Jay Bruce or Lucas Duda. Yes. And I think if I was choosing between those two, it's going to be Jay Bruce. Yeah. Jay Bruce has no substantial injury history. Jay Bruce just seems like a guy who can, mm-hmm. you can add him to your team. He's going to give you home runs, RBIs. He's going to play a passable defense. He's going to be a good guy in the clubhouse. Jay Bruce is your is your trade chip. I don't know how much a rental of Jay Bruce brings back. I mean, remember, we mm-hmm. uh, the Mets traded Dilson Herrera. Um, you know, is there a prospect of the Dilson Herrera pedigree out there? Who knows? Can we get Dilson Herrera back? Can we have him back? <laughs> we do. We're going to need a second baseman next apparent, year. Sandy apparently didn't was not a believer. was was not a Herrera stone. So yeah. you know, I don't know. Um, I do worry. I've been hearing interesting rumbles that if the Mets trade Duda, that a logical place for him to land would be the Yankees. Oh, absolutely. Which would be yeah. interesting and well, somewhat different. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, lefty, mm-hmm. lefty power in Yankee Stadium. Lucas Duda, when he's on, mm-hmm. when Lucas Duda gets on a hot streak, crushes baseballs. Yeah. Um, I just, I know this is an impossibility, but I just am hoping that if they have to be traded, that Lucas Duda can be packaged with Curtis Granderson somewhere. So that he can still so he can follow. keep following him. That is my, that is my hope. Um, it's not going to happen, but I can dream. Yeah. Um, otherwise, as far as players, if Neil Walker is healthy, um, he is a potential um, trade candidate. Again, I don't think Neil Walker's coming back next year. So yeah, what can so what can you get for him? Um, yeah, there there are no more compensation picks. Yeah. So it's it behooves the Mets to move these players. Yeah. I would also like to see um, Jose Reyes released. Um, I understand all that Jose Reyes has done for this organization. Um, I understand he has fans in the organization and he has fans in the stands. I'm, I wouldn't count myself as either of those. How much of Jose Reyes's continuing presence on the team is a Lenny Harris situation? If you'll recall from the late 90s, the Mets held on to pinch hitter Lenny Harris probably for a year or two longer than they should have because Mike Piazza liked him. He was yeah. friends with Mike Piazza. His presence on the team kept Piazza happy. Mm-hmm. Reyes is very friendly with Cespedes. Yes. And especially since Azdrubal Cabrera is trying to, you know, get himself thrown out of New York as quickly as possible, he's another friend of, of Cespedes. How much of that do we think is is keeping Cespedes happy and, and anchored? That's really interesting, and I hadn't thought about I that. I hadn't thought about that until just now. Yeah, what are, what are the things that we don't know about? Yeah. And we're going to have to wait till. You know, somebody writes the blockbuster tell-all of the 2017 season to find out the uh, the behind-the-scenes sort of machinations that are going on. I can't wait to read that book. I We may have to be the one to write that book because <laughs> this has been quite a year. Oh, boy. Should we wrap it up? Yeah. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Flushing Transit Authority. Hang in there. It will get better. I promise. They will win games again in the future. They are going to have 
a relevant team next year. It's we're not looking at a rebuild. I, I swear, I hope it better not be a rebuild. I can't stand a rebuild at this point. Just enjoy the game for what it is. 